And uh, so turn to your neighbor and ask that question, who am I? Turn to your neighbor and say, who am I? And uh, maybe you don't want to ask the person next to you. But as we, uh, as we walk through this, uh, the desire and the prayer and the reason we're asking this question as we go through the book of Ephesians is really uh, to ask that in the context of saying, who does God say that I am? Who does God say that I am? And even further, and I would say more emphasis on who does God say that we are as the church? Okay? And what does that look like? And how do we know how we're to live? And how do we know how we're to respond? And how do we know any of this if we don't first recognize who I am in God's eyes? Right? And so Ephesians 1, and uh, specifically today, we're, uh, we're going to look at starting in verse 15 through the end of chapter 1. And so let's start uh, first this morning by reading that text. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, everyone say enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Everyone say, we are his body. This morning, that's going to be the focus of this message. The main idea, the main crux that we want to grasp from the second part of Ephesians chapter 1 is that we are the body of Christ. And as we unpack this, you'll seek to understand why this is so important. And uh, this is, uh, just to review a little bit as we think about, this is the Apostle Paul that is writing this letter to the church and uh, I had uh, some good questions this last week from a couple of you who've been reading your Bibles, which I'm so excited about. When I have people come to me and ask questions about that, it's one of the most encouraging things because it tells me you're opening up the Word of God outside of Sunday. And that's, uh, that's one of my greatest prayers for you as a church. And they said, well, some of my study notes say that it may not have been written to the church at Ephesus. And I just want to clarify that uh, some of the manuscripts, in fact, don't include the term Ephesus in here, while some do. That's not a contradiction per se, 
but rather uh, when we talked about last week and thinking about how broad the port city of Ephesus was, it's highly likely that Paul was writing a letter that was received by Ephesus and was written to the broader church. In other words, God's letter through Paul is meant to communicate the truth of what God desires his church to be to the church. Everyone say the church. And if we believe that the body of Christ is the church and the church is those who believe in the name of Jesus to be saved, then this is applicable across the board. And so it doesn't change the application of this when we think about this. In fact, the church at Ephesus would have been a recipient of this. Okay? So when we read the text and we see that and you see those notes in your Bible, don't panic. It's all still the same truth. It's all the, still the same application. And it's not false that it would have been sent to Ephesus. There's just speculation in the midst of that as we think about uh, who is the direct recipient of this. And it wasn't uncommon. Now we're sitting here together as the church, the body of Christ, reading the letter that was written from Paul to the church. And the applications are the same. So as we think about this and we think about Paul's motive in writing this, his motive is the same, his purpose is the same, and we understand this clearly uh, that the application from this stems for those of us who believe in the name of Jesus to be saved and are therefore the body of Christ. Now, as we think about this further, I want to ask a question um, just to think about. What What is something that you wish that you knew? And you don't have to speak it out. I'm just curious to think about that. As you look through your life and think, what is something that you wish that you knew? And so to expound upon that a little more, I have four uh, interesting facts that you may have never known. First one, did you know that banging your head against a wall for one hour burns 150 calories? <laughs> Alternatively, you can walk for 45 minutes and it does the same thing. Just to be clear. Terranophobia is the fear of being tickled by feathers. True story. You can look it up. Terranophobia. So if you are deathly afraid of someone coming at you with a feather, this is your diagnosis. Did you know that May 29th is put a pillow on your fridge day? I'm not making this up. Supposedly, it it, it helps to bring wealth and blessing to your household. So, if you are into that sort of thing, stick a pillow on your fridge on May 29th and have someone over for dinner and see if they notice it. Okay? And the last one, 7%, I can't believe this, this, 7% of American adults believe that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. And if you are one of those 7%, I hate to break it to you, but that is just not true, okay? The agricultural background in me cringes when I read things like this. But regardless, what is, what is, what is one thing that you wish you knew? But maybe another question is, what is, what, what is something that maybe you wish you didn't know? Or maybe, rather, something you know, but you don't act like you know it. And you say, when we get to that third question, suddenly it becomes more personal because we go, oh man, now this just got real. We were having a good time and you had to go there. You had to, you had to go to the point where it leads to conviction. And unfortunately, often that's how it is with our identity in Christ and our identity as a church. Is that we hear 
the word of God preached. We hear these things talked about. So we know them or we hear them, but we don't act like we know them unless maybe we're around other people who know them too. As we're going through this series and we're asking that question, who am I? And more specifically, who are we? While we may cover some truths that you know and others that you don't know, I want you to think about what maybe are some truths in here that you have heard before and you should know, but you've chosen not to live in light of. This is an issue that is plaguing the church at large all over. That we, we just do this because we're accustomed to it. And we come, maybe we come on Sunday morning because it's just what I've always done. And if that's all we're doing when we come, then we're missing the point. And for us to understand who we are is the first step in a long step of transformation as we seek to become more like Jesus. And we have to start by understanding that we are the body of Christ. Okay, We are the body of Christ. Everyone say that again. If we are the body of Christ, then our desire, as the Apostle Paul speaks here in his prayer, is that our desire should be that our hearts are enlightened and to know these specific truths. And Paul talks about this in verse uh, 17 and 18, his prayer for the church. And this is, this is what my prayer has been for us all week. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What a wondrous thing to think about. Now, we're not talking about, when it speaks of the heart here, we're not talking about the muscle itself, okay? In fact, throughout Scripture, when it refers to the heart being transformed, the heart being changed, we're not talking about your, your physical muscle here, the the actual term for heart here is your whole being, all of you, the core of who you are. And that Paul's prayer here is that that would be enlightened, that the core of your being would see clearly. And then the question becomes, would see what clearly? The first one that Paul identifies here in the second part of verse 18, that you may know... What is the hope to which he has called you? That you may know. Everyone say no. Now, when we think about hope, what conjures up in your mind? I have to be honest. The first thing that conjured up in my mind when I thought of hope was all of you who are Cub fans and waited 108 years... For them to win a World Series. And the phrase that everyone would say every year, what was it? There's always next year. Man, you people are resilient. 108 years, it's like an illustration of faithfulness. Man, you have let us down for 108 years. But there's always next year. There's always next year. And there was this hope. And Man, everyone was geared up and ready to go. The start of the next season. We're ready to go. And then they get to the playoffs and they lose again. And There's always next year. 
And what's interesting about that is that we do not have that same mentality when it comes to our faith and what God is doing. In fact, we lose hope and lose faith so quickly. When things do not pan out the way I anticipated they would. God, what are you doing? What is happening? What is going on? And then we try to find our hope in something else. Oh, you know what, God? I tried you for a little bit, but sorry. And Paul's desire here is that our whole being would see clearly. That we would know the hope that we have been called to. Colossians 1 says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, wait a minute. We just shifted gears. This hope is totally different now. Because we're not talking about an earthly hope that's rooted in something Here, we're talking about something that's even beyond this world, something that's eternal in nature. The hope that we're called to is something that oftentimes doesn't comprehend to my mind because when I say, well, I hope this will happen, I hope this will come to be, there's not really all that much confidence because I have no control over what I'm hoping in, yet the kind of hope that the Apostle Paul is talking about here is an eternal hope that God has control over. You see how this shifts things, how this changes what's happening, because all of a sudden it's out of my hands, as, with, as is with almost anything else that I use the term I hope. And yet, if my confidence is rooted in who God is and what He's promised then I know the one who is in control of it. Now flip with me, put your finger in Ephesians 1, and flip with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Thinking about knowing the hope that God has called us to. Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to start at verse 13. He says here, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, everyone say it's impossible, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now I want you to think about this. When it says, it is impossible, this is verse 18, for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now understand, this is written to a group of people that were experiencing tumultuous times, suffering, anguish, who were being threatened with, they were, they were considering turning away from their faith and wandering from this, okay? Just to give you context behind this. But we have to stop and ask the question, why is there a need for hope if I see no need in my life for refuge? If I am not yearning for security and safety in something that is constant and permanent, then can I truly understand the depth of the hope that I am called to? Because you see, the essence of the gospel, the essence of the Christian life is this idea that I cannot do this on my own. That I am only saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And if that is true, then it is not because of anything I can do that I am saved. But is only my salvation rooted in the one who can do all. But if I do not see that I need refuge, if I am secure in where I am at, if I am solidified and happy with everything that I have been given, then why is there any need for me to flee for refuge? And yet it is we who have fled for refuge that have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. See, church, we are so accustomed to finding that hope in anything else that I can tangibly hold, that I can cling to. And so quickly, when that thing that I'm clinging to disperses or abandons or hurts me, then rather than just lose hope in that thing or that person, I lose hope in the only one who can provide any constant source of refuge to me. And so when Paul prays, I want your hearts, your core being to be enlightened and to know the hope that you've called, that I've called you to. This is not the kind of hope that we think about when we say, I hope this happens. But the hope God has called us to the body of Christ, too, is an imperishable, unbreakable, irreversible promise from God himself. And 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself, and he is pure. Powerful, powerful words. But that's not it. Turn back to Ephesians 1. Verse 
Verse 18 again. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. Everyone say no. What is the hope to which he has called you? And this is just a continuation of the list. So you can tack again that you may know. Again on the front of this. That you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now. Your temptation when you first read through this might be to assume, oh, he's talking about the inheritance that we receive in eternity. We're thinking about eternal hope. We're thinking about the promises of this. Then uh, our mind, after we read through this, automatically tends to jump to, okay, inheritance. He's talking about our inheritance. No, he's not. That's not what it says. In fact, if we look closely, it says that you may know what are the riches of Whose inheritance? What does it say? His. His inheritance. His glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you comprehend what this is saying? When we ask the question, who am I? If I am in Christ, I am part of God's inheritance. Have you comprehend it that this the more i read this and studied this this week the more it blew my mind because so often my perception of who i am and my perception of who we are is rooted in what culture says about us or what culture says about who who i am so much so that it's easy to see that as the perception, the, the, the blanketed picture of what this looks like. We pattern our, our movements off of that. Well, how, how do we function in a way to where the culture might not see us this way? And I'm, I'm going to break it to you. We're, we're not. If we continue to preach truth and teach truth and do what God's word says, then there's going to be a lot of people who just don't like that. That's why Jesus told his disciples that you can expect suffering. Anticipate it. It's not comfortable. It's just not. But the reality, when we think about this passage, not speaking of our inheritance as a child of God, though that is a separate thing that we could talk about, this is speaking about the glory, the riches of God's inheritance of his people. And Paul's prayer for the church was that they get this, that they would understand that they would know the astonishingly great value that God places on them. Do you hear that? That the church would know. Everyone say no. The astonishingly great value that God has placed on them. broader question should be what does this motivate us to do? When I think about the fact that I am God's inheritance, His investment in me, 
what am I doing about that? Am I investing in others what God has invested in me? Do we see ourselves as the body of Christ? As God's inheritance? See, when we stop trying to see ourselves in light of who everyone else sees us to be. And I have to admit, I confess that I struggle with that. I struggle with that. It is so easy, especially in our day and age, to live a life of comparison and to be plagued by what does everyone else think of us. And that is not what God has called us to. As individuals or as the church. Because if we're constantly looking over our shoulder at what everyone else thinks we should be or thinks we should do, then we miss the point. God has said, you are the body of Christ. You are my inheritance. And then there's a mission. Go and compound that inheritance. That's our goal. And when we understand what God has done through Christ, that's, that should be the motivation. We should know. We should know this. The third thing, look at verse 19 of Ephesians 1. That you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. Have you ever been in a situation where you just felt powerless? I have to tell you a story. So uh, my junior year of school at Moody Bible Institute, um, me and my roommate Kyle at the time decided we were going to go back to his place for spring break, West Coast. He lived in Washington State. And... Uh, it's spring, so it's March, all right? And the West Coast in March, it's, it's not cold, but it's chilly. It's all like 40s, 50s, and cloudy. Seems to be always cloudy in Washington State. Not all the time, but majority of the time. And uh, we, we decided, we were really ambitious, and we decided we're going to go ocean kayaking. And so uh, we load up his kayaks on his car, and we, uh, we headed out and we put in on this bay uh, just outside of the ocean and uh, near an area. I don't know how many of you have been to Washington State before. A few of you. How many of you have ever seen a place called Deceptions Pass? Has anyone been there? No. Okay. Go home and look it up sometime. It's this huge towering bridge, hundreds of feet in the air, that there's this valley and the ocean is out here and it narrows. It comes in here and narrows like that and then goes out into this bay. All right, and we put into a bay just beside this, and we go out. It's sunny. It's nice. There's no wind, and uh, we decide we're going to kayak. We're going to kayak out and up and look down Deceptions Pass just to see because it's a beautiful view. And uh, first mistake, we uh, decided to do this without wearing any wetsuits in March. And we get up there, and just outside of Deceptions Pass, we're looking down. It's amazing. This is incredible. And all of a sudden, a wind comes down out of that canyon and starts blowing. 
And we go from completely calm to three to five foot swells on this ocean tide coming in. And it wasn't long before that ocean tide turned my kayak and dumped me over into uh, the freezing cold Pacific Ocean. And it was a type of cold that instantly takes your breath away. And uh, my kayak is now upside down. And my buddy is about 20 feet, 30 feet towards trying to get out of this, these waves. And uh, he turns around, comes back, tries to help flip my kayak over and support for me to get back in. And then his kayak tips over. And then we realize that uh, the compartment on the front of his kayak has lost the cap and is now taking on water and sinking. And uh, thankfully we had life jackets on, but it is so cold, they say you can last about 15 minutes before you go unconscious. And uh, the tide is now sweeping us down into this pass, and uh, we're trying to find help. And in that moment, I can't tell you how powerless I started to feel. I could not swim against the current. My body was starting to shut down because it was so cold. And it wasn't long. Uh, It felt like an eternity, but it really wasn't that long before I could no longer use my legs or my arms because your body shuts down your external limbs to keep your core warm. And uh, we go into Deception's Pass, and uh, my buddy's able to grab a rock. I bounce off and go back out into the center, and because of the narrowing, there's numerous whirlpools in the middle of this. And so I look down, I see my kayak on its end sinking. And uh, I went through about three of those, down, back up. And uh, that was the first time I, ex- I anticipated, all right, God, I'm going to come to be with you. I really thought that. And uh, God spared my life. And the Coast Guard came, pulled us out, and uh, we were okay. Major hypothermia. Our body temperature was extremely low. Uh, we'd been in the water for about 20 minutes, and I was still conscious, which was a miracle. Um, But in that moment, I felt so powerless. There was literally nothing I could do. And I can't help but think that some of you here today are probably feeling that way about your life right now. You just feel like you're drowning. And maybe you've got proverbial whirlpools in your life. They're just pulling you under. You come up, you get a breath, you're like... Is it over yet? Nope, here comes another one. And your body, everything's shutting down, and you're just going, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I don't know where to get help. And the reality is, we come to this passage, Paul's prayer is that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of whose power? Lift up your voice, church. Whose power? To us who believe. And we have to recognize this. I must recognize my own weakness. But even more so, recognize the immeasurable power of God. If I'm going to strive to be the church, to be the body of Christ, to live in light of these truths, I have to recognize that I, in and of myself, am not God. And some of you have had experiences in your life where you've been faced that reality very head on. And others of you maybe haven't. Or maybe you've built up some self-confidence where you're going, eh, I feel pretty good about who I am. 
But look at this. The next portion of this shows the immeasurable power of God visible in what he did in Christ. It says, according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. See, God demonstrated not only his love, but his power for us when Christ died. One sacrifice for all of humanity. Raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand. We have to ask ourselves, how many of us have doubted that God can use us because we're so weak? How many of you have doubted that? When we understand the miracle, get this, when we understand the miracle of what was accomplished through Christ, it should vanquish beyond a shadow of a doubt that He can use me to accomplish His purposes too. That He can use me. But we're really good at making excuses. I may be weak when it comes to giving my time or my resources. But God is powerful. I may feel that I'm weak when it comes to sharing the gospel with a stranger, but God is powerful. I may be weak when it comes to physical or emotional or mental health, but God is powerful. May we know that we are the body of Christ and therein know that who is powerful? Lift up your voice, church. Who is powerful? Amen. I must know that it is of no strength of mind that this is done. But it is all radiating from the power of God in me. The fourth and final thing to recognize here, to know. And this is at the end of verse 22. This is really important. That is that God gave him as head over all things to the church. Know that Christ is the head of it all. That's why when we come back to anything and everything we do as a church, the first question we should ask is where are our eyes fixed? Where are they fixed? That should be our aim for us individually and as a church. That we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's where we look. Recognizing who we are as the body of Christ. So we look to Christ. Think about how ridiculous it would be if your head told your body to walk left and you went right, think about if the head told your body to look up and you looked down. 
and then stop and think about what it looks like for God through Christ to say, Church, this is what I ask you to do. And we don't do it. May we not be in that place. In closing today, I want to turn, flip to Romans chapter 12 as we think about this. Romans chapter 12. And if you want a passage, if we're asking ourselves, okay, what does it look like for us to be the body of Christ? Read Romans 12. You'll see why in a minute. You want a challenge for yourself. Evaluate your life in comparison to Romans 12. And let's think about how to do this better. I'm just going to read the whole chapter. You follow along with me. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, everyone say one, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body, everyone say one, in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to your faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in the showing of honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Powerful challenge for us as the body of Christ. 
So as we think about how are we going to apply this as a church family, how are we going to put this into practice? One, pray that your hearts, the core of your being, would be enlightened. That you would see clearly who you are and what God has called us to as the body of Christ. Secondly, pursue God's truth. Pursue it together. Open your Bible. Read this. Study this. Yearn for this. Grow in this. Pursue it with all you have. And thirdly, practice resting in His power and doing what He has called us to do, that we might be the church, not just Ephraim, but the church in Canton, in Fulton County, in this whole area. And that people would see, not us, but Jesus. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use us as the body of Christ to bring glory to the head of the church, that we would know the eternal hope that we've been called to, that we would know that we are valued exceedingly by God himself, but even more so that we would understand the greatness of your power above all else, despite our weaknesses, that you equip us to go out and do that which you've called us to, bringing glory to Christ as the head of all. We pray this in his name. Amen.